are listening to 10,000 Swamp Leaders, leadership conversations that explore adapting and thriving in a complex world with Rick Torsett and guests. Hi, everybody. This is Rick Torsett, and this is 10,000 Swamp Leaders. The podcast, as you know, if you're a listener of ours, where we have conversations with people who have made a decision to lead in some pretty complex and difficult and challenging spaces and places in the world. And this is a place for us to have conversations about lessons learned, ideas, points of view about leading and tips that we can pick up as we develop our own craft of leading. I also want to uh, welcome you all back. We've taken a little bit of a hiatus during the holidays. And so this is the first episode into the year 2023. I can't believe we're in 2023. It's uh, my pleasure today to have on the show somebody who I'm meeting almost like you're meeting him, although he comes with high regard and references, and I followed up that with uh, some research, and this is a pretty impressive young man, and Kush, I probably shouldn't even say young. I don't know how old you want to claim before you're old, but Kush Dosi is my guest today. He is uh, with the CMAR Community Health Centers in the Pacific Northwest in the state of Washington. He is a clinic manager for Marysville Medical and Dental Site and also manages the CMAR Medical Residency Program. And there are, Kush, a lot of other things you're up to and have been up to that we're going to get into because it all involves leading and how you go about it. So before we get into any of that, uh, why don't you jump in here and tell people what you want them to know about you as a way to get us started. Yeah. So thank you, first of all, for inviting me on this podcast. I have had the opportunity to listen to some of the other podcasts, this specifically from this show, 10,000 Swamp Leaders. I, every time I walk away with something new, I especially want to thank uh, Kurt O'Brien, who was a huge inspiration, actually, for me being a leader. Uh, and, and he shaped a lot of the way I was. And so I think for people to really know me, I think it really my origin story is, is really the, the critical part. I was uh, born to two immigrant parents. Initially, when we came here, you know, both mom and dad definitely struggled a little bit. And so we were considered what the U.S. would consider low income. And as we kind of uh, were able to progress a little bit over time, it kind of shaped the way I thought about how I wanted to approach and how I wanted to provide service to the world. And I happened to find myself in healthcare. It was just an opportunity that kind of came up and I kind of pursued it. But I was really, really intentful that when I was going to go into healthcare, I was going to go somewhere where I felt the need was the most. And for me, that was community health centers. So that's why I work today at CMAR. I'm involved with several other community health centers in Washington state and, and kind of staying in that realm of, of how do we address primary health care to prevent people from going from the hospital, for, to prevent people getting um, high hospital bills. I mean, to to really address health equity. So that's really a lot of the core of of who I am and really drives me on how I think about leadership and how to navigate all those really complex issues that that really exist in healthcare, especially, you know, with the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, so that's a a great intro. So let's help people who are not going to be nearly as informed as you are about the state of healthcare period, much less the sector that you're working in. So uh, what is it about this sector of healthcare that's drawn you in? And what is the need that you see that needs to be addressed that you're bringing to bear your expertise and and your ability to lead? So get people up to speed on the challenges you face in your world. Sure. Yeah. So within the realm of healthcare, there's all these different types of healthcare providers. So you have like the Kaisers and the the Providences, they're the larger hospital systems. And then you have the set of systems that are called community health centers. And they are really at the crux because 
their origins, um, each of those community health centers was founded by a movement. So for Seymour Community Health Centers, one of the healthcare centers in Washington state was actually founded by Latinos, like people that saw that there wasn't a space for Latinos in the healthcare system. Another really great example is Country Doctor Community Health Centers founded by the Seattle Black Panther Party. Um, And so there's a lot of great history that's tied there. And so today you see these community health centers, they serve a lot of uninsured folks, a lot of Medicaid folks, a lot of low-income folks, a lot of folks whose language is not English, a lot of immigrants, refugees. And I see this on on a daily basis. And I think the main leadership challenge I've had, I think, with community health centers is I think we all have this understanding that we have good intent, that we understand the communities we serve, we try to advocate for health equity. But over time, we sometimes think that we're still at our origin and we don't move forward. And that's where I've had a lot of my leadership challenges trying to work in these spaces, saying, no, we still need to recenter ourselves around diversity, equity, inclusion, and it becomes a very tough leadership challenge when you have leaders that have been in the positions for so many years and have been doing it for so long. I mean, so that, and that certainly makes it a a difficult challenge for sure. Okay. So I know what features prominently in your focus and your work, and you've already touched on it. So let's dig into a little bit, because I also think this helps people understand what you're up to. So help people understand when you talk about advancing health efforts for communities of color and mobilizing health equity within communities, what does that actually look like for those people? What's the gap? What's the issue there that you're trying to address? Yeah, so I think there's several issues. So the first piece is that when we have this conversation, typically among community health centers or or even sometimes, I think what happened during the pandemic was that health equity became such a hot button issue. And now it was suddenly put forward and a lot of healthcare centers were now putting these messages out that we support diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then when I worked within those centers, I often struggled because the words did not reflect the actions that were supposed to take place. So I believed in my leaders, you know, they were saying all this great stuff and I'm like, all right, let's let's get to work, let's do something. And then as the employee, I never felt that that work was being done. And so when we talk about advancing community health, we're talking about how are we pipelining new physicians, new people that look like our community into our healthcare center that are providing that care? How do we talk about within our strategic plan? How are we investing as community health centers into diversity, equity, inclusion? Not just saying we're going to, how are we investing it? How are we putting the resource into it? And then the biggest part is the communication. Like for me, the biggest part of being a leader is if you are a healthcare leader, you really have to communicate your strategic plan, not only to internal to your organization, not just to your board, not just the executive leadership, but to your community. If I'm a community member and you are putting out a statement that's saying that you believe in diversity, equity, and inclusion, my first question is going to be, well, what are you doing today? What are you doing three years from now? What are you doing five years from now? And unfortunately, that communication gap never happens. And so it never becomes clear to communities, the patient, the staff, what exactly is happening in those promises of equity and inclusion and advancement for for community health. All right. So I'm curious then. So you're in school, you're studying this stuff, you've gone back to school. That's how we come to cross paths because you did a graduate program at University of Washington. And also what I hear you say is there's a big gap between what's espoused, in your case, community health centers, but probably all organizations in some way, and what we actually do. And, And I oftentimes think of it from the standpoint of, 
Well, we're trying to figure out all these gnarly problems. One of the questions that rarely gets asked at the leadership level of themselves is, what's my contribution to the mess I'm trying to solve? So when you when you look a little bit in the rearview mirror in your time as you've been in the system for a while, what are some of the self-inflicted challenges that the system is producing itself that gets in the way of its own mission? And how do you how do you sort that and what do you do about that? That's a really, really great question. So I think it's kind of because I think naturally the history of community health centers is very empowering in of itself. And I think it makes it very difficult when you have conversations with leaders and they are like, well, we're a community health center. We already serve uninsured populations. You know, we're already doing this work. What, what else can we possibly do? And I think the biggest thing that folks have to understand is when you're a leader, you have to self-educate. You have to self-grow. And so the question I always ask, and I've been in positions like this before where folks will be like, let's let's just add anti-racism, let's add equity, let's add diversity into this statement or this mission. And the first question I always ask them is, define, give me a definition. What is diversity? What is equity? What is anti-racism? And 95% of the time I've heard silence. And so I think that in and of itself gives us a insight that first we have to do the work ourselves and we can do the work to others. I think that's why, you know, some of a lot of the issues is like we jump so far. We just go to the thousandth stretch and we don't take a pause and say, wait, have we taken the time to educate ourselves on how are we going to address all of this work within our realm? And so I think that kind of makes it, that's what I've seen as is this, 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 this big conflict of not wanting to do that self-growth piece and just brush. And I think what you had mentioned before about why what's inherent in the system, healthcare is moving so fast. And because it moves so fast, we tend in healthcare to just move as fast as we can with it. doesn't matter what the topic is. Tomorrow, there'll be a new medication out. COVID-19 happened. There'll be another pandemic. And so we're always moving in this constant, constant speed. Like there's no, that ever never feels like there's a time to catch and breathe and take a break. And so when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's what often happens in healthcare. We're so used to this rush process, we don't take the pause that we need to to do that self-education, self-growth, and really think about what resources are we going to invest in our organization and in our community. All right. Uh, Boy, you you spin a bunch of stuff here. So let me, let's take it one piece. Let's take a pause and slow down. What do you say? So I'm imagining, based on your road that you traveled and and getting the education you've got to enter into the system, there had to have been some surprises for you when you actually found yourself in the middle of the system doing the work. You got this great education behind you and all these wonderful ideas, and suddenly you're in it. So what were the biggest surprises for you about you in your actual ability to do the work versus what you had been preparing to do? I mean, meaning the University of Washington's medical program cannot get you ready for everything, right? So so where were you caught out and how did you, as you say, self-efficate and self-grow in real time in this dynamic where you're trying to get the job done as well? Because people out there listening have the same challenge. So what did Kush know how to do and what lessons and ideas can you pass on to them? Yeah, absolutely. And so the biggest thing I, I think I'm, I've taken away from, from my entire journey, and I, I kind of come back to this one line, um, and, it, and it's all it takes is one person. 
The reason I say that is because I've been in all these spaces and in and not even the big dialogues that we have together. It's in the small conversations. I find out other people have similar thoughts. They'll ask me the same thing. Why haven't we done this? Or why haven't we tried this? Or why haven't we done this? And I say, wait a minute, everyone is thinking the same thing. All it takes is one person to say, let's do it. Let's just get it done. And so I found myself that I I happened to be that person. And that's because I had those little conversations. So let's the University of Washington program is a really, really great example. So in the health administration program, I was talking to a lot of my students and they all were like, you know, we would love to see more of this diversity, equity and inclusion curriculum invested into the program and working with the faculty and doing all this. And I said, we all have this great idea. We should just do it. Like, what are we what are we thinking about? Just make it happen. And I think that comes to the the point of when I asked people after, like, why didn't you start this? They were like, oh, they, I either got two answers. The first answer was, oh, someone else will come. The next class will come. It's their problem. They'll do it. You know, something else. So passing off the problem to someone else. Or the second one is, I don't believe in my leadership capability. I don't think I could have made a change, which is very, very untrue. And so when we started this curriculum advocacy team, it started with me but I empowered someone else to be a co-chair with me and say, let's do this work together. And then we brought all the students together and we made every single student a consultant. So they were all working with faculty and professors um, and taking leadership roles in trying to revise the curriculum so they could include diversity, equity, inclusion. And we made, we were very, very thoughtful about it because one of the biggest things I said at the beginning, and my co-chair said the same, was that we're going to do a rotational leadership system. So every time this consulting group would work with the professor, they would rotate leadership. And that really sent the message to our group that every single person could be a leader. And again, it only just takes one one person to say something and say, let's do it. And then you find that the momentum is already there. It's just that no one was capturing it and no one was, you know, driving it and just taking it that one little next step it needed to really drive that work forward. Okay. So I have two follow-up questions to this then. The, The first one is, when you implemented this strategy and making everybody consultants and rotations, what happened and what changed as opposed to had you never at the group never done this? What actually happened then? Yeah, I would say the biggest change I noticed is that people didn't buy into the idea. I think there's a difference. And I think I learned this from Kurt. Buy-in versus ownership, two different things. When you have ownership, you have people that are passionate there every single day, ready to do the work, knowing that owning the work and they're going to make a change versus buying of just telling my class, hey, we're going to do this. And maybe some people show up, maybe some people don't. But what I noticed was the biggest, you know, the biggest way I measured was just the attendance and the consistency over time. So every single meeting we would meet every week and I would have eight to nine students. They're consistently there with me. And not only did they, by the time we were about to graduate, they had recruited now another 10 students to do that work forward. And so I think that is super powerful because now you're sending a message that this is the work that we're owning. We're going to be working with our faculty. We're going to be working with the department. And once those folks saw those changes, because not when we were making those curriculum changes, the first years were coming to us and saying, oh, wow, there is more diversity, equity, inclusion than I, than I thought was. And feedback and saying, wow, we are making a change. We are doing something. Um, And then also the second piece to that is I think those people that say that, you know, no, I'm too shy or I'm too, I don't think I'm a leader. You know, I think this gave them that ability to say, hey, no, you are a leader. Take, you know, if you take the leadership role, we'll be here to support you, uh, but try it out, see how it goes. And every time I, I never got any pushback or anything like that, every single person succeeded. And not only have we now created that system, 
we have just now had 15 MHA students that were all DEI consultants in the MHA program now working in 15 different healthcare institutions now being able to do the same. So I think there's power in that because once you you know, empower people to become leaders and they go out into these different worlds and realms in healthcare, they're able to kind of, they feel the empowerment to drive that change within their space as well. All right. So let me ask my second question. This is going to take us back into your answer. And it comes up because you say, let's just do this. The people can hear it in your voice. I can see it in your face because we got video going on here too. You're quite wired and excited in those that moment. And I'm wondering, where did that come from for you? Did you, did you come into the world with that? Did you learn from your parents? Did you have mentors? Is this just part of your DNA? Because I think that that juice and that energy is what helps people get mobilized to, to take ownership of things as somebody who's trying to, to bring them along. So what can you tell people about the importance of how you show up in the world to get people's attention? Because you know something about that. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I kind of link it back to how I talk. I start any conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, which is all about your perspective. It starts from you. So my energy comes from being the son of immigrant parents, going through some really rough things and pulled over by police officers for really small things. Like I didn't look like I should have belonged in a graduate school building, even while I was in graduate school doing a double masters, you know, being able to pulled over or, or these just minor things of like, you don't belong, you don't belong here or here or here. And instead of for me, when I, when I went through in a reflection at, at the first time, it was really, really hard trying to get over that and saying, how am I, how am I going to move forward? I feel like I'm powerless. And through the MHA program, I was, and the MPA program, so both of my masters, I was given these great opportunities to be in spaces, to be at tables that I maybe would not have been at and afforded to be able to do that. And so a lot of that energy really gave me this momentum to kind of move forward in terms of using my background, my heritage, where I came from to empower the communities I came from. Again, as identifying as a person of color, there's nothing more rewarding and working in the community health clinic, seeing people that look like you, that are excited to come in, that see someone that could speak Spanish or Hindi or Punjabi or Vietnamese and get the care that they deserve. And so that really, really energizes me. I'm also just a person that naturally gets energy from people. So, you know, like me being siloed doesn't really work well. I love being in person and just doing this like interaction and, and that gives me power as well. And then I think the other piece that I, I kind of mentioned is when you have that momentum and everyone is having these conversations and they're also passionate about the same thing, I think it also drives you, drives me to do the work forward and really push that, push that energy out of me. So. Yeah. So let's delve into that a little bit because I think this is an important element of leading from my perspective, which is if I might, based on what you said, you see a situation, why don't we, why don't we do it? And you say, let's just do it. But you see that there is a need to do it. Can't do it yourself. Uh, it's going to take others. You may or may not have all the authority you wish you had in order to just get them going. So what do you know about what it takes to mobilize individuals into a coherent group to go to work on something? What is the craft for you of mobilizing people into action to do hard work? Yeah, I honestly find it's humans are very difficult. Every journey I've started on with, with a group of people, I always have to kind of, one, gauge the room. And two, it was also having, I think, having that individual connection to folks 
really is helpful. Um, I, I think it's very difficult if I don't know the person sitting across from the room, but I'm asking them to be a part of something larger than maybe themselves. And so I think one of the difficulties I, I always struggle with is, you know, you have all these characters and personalities in the room. And so how are you, how are we thinking about moving people forward? And for me, that always has to come back to the why. Whatever space you are in, there has to be a why for you. And I, I always, I think I did this in Kurt's class, but we did this five whys exercises that we had learned. Super, super helpful. I, every group I start, I always start with the five whys. Why are you here? You didn't have to be a board member. You didn't have to be a clinic manager. You didn't have to be a physician. You didn't have to be an MA, but you chose to be here. What is that why? And I find that when people find that why, it's my family. I'm from, I like, you know, I work in Seymour Community Health Service. I ask this question and I see my staff are passionate because they are part of this heritage and they're proud to serve um, their people, people that look like them, people they know. And so I think when you come back to that why, that is so important. Not only just starting with that, right, and putting it throughout the entire journey of whatever of whatever you're going to do is incorporating that why and reminding people why we are here. And so that's why I think there's such a great opportunity in community health centers because our why is so powerful, you know, for every clinic has a different story. And so I think that's what I think that's what it really comes down to is that why and using that why to really drive that energy forward. And I think I'm often really, really surprised when I when I start with the why and I kind of move forward on how passionate people become over time. Even though that, that might have not seemed like they were very interested, they suddenly become very vested and they and they really start to see their the work move forward. So Say you you said something about gauge the room. That's another craft. That's another piece of leadership skill. So when you say read or gauge the room, what what does it mean? And what do you actually do when you're gauging a room? Because people out there listening are going, what does that mean? So I think I could give a really great example that highlights this. So when we started our curriculum team that was in the MHA program, we were met with some pushback from faculty. Some faculty embraced it. Some were unsure of what that looked like. And so when we were gauging the room, we were saying, which faculty members are going to be ones that are really going to advocate for us, that are going to sit through with us, do revise the curriculum, work with the students to include all these topics, and then go out to the faculty and say, no, this needs to be a part of it. So how we started is we started with two professors. Both those professors were passionate about it. All we did was just leverage it a little bit and said, hey, let's partner to work on the curriculum. They worked on it with us. They went back to the faculty and said, this is really great. I think you all need to engage. Suddenly it started with two, then we had three, then four, then five, and suddenly we were getting all these requests. By the end of the year, all the faculty, like major, I would say 95% of them, enjoyed this, not only relationship building with students, but the way we were approaching it so much that the following year was put into the program strategic plan. Every faculty member must sit down with the students, our committee, to revise the curriculum. And I think that's the power, is finding your allies in the room and not only gauging that piece, but saying, how can we use that allyship to have them encourage other people? You know, this always happens when we think in the clinic, just, just any doctor setting, and you are, like myself, right? I'm not a medical doctor, but I have a medical director. And sometimes when these changes and I face leadership challenges with my own physicians, I go to her first and we work on it together. We understand each other. And then I have her drive the message to the physicians. I think it's so different when it comes from a peer that you know, understands your background, understands where you're coming from to have that conversation. And so that's why in both of those 
kind of scenarios, it's very, very important to gauge the room because it kind of changes almost how you approach your leadership tactic or your strategy and, and really shapes the outcome. It really can change the outcome of, of where you're headed in the momentum that's built. So talk then a little bit about how you uh, manage the tension between going fast and going slow, because some people are not ready to get on board, but you need them on board in order to get where you're going. So again, more craft here. You know, So what do you know about managing the tension for these different groups of people who are in different places, but you need them all eventually with you? So how do you do that? I think it's always really, really, really helpful to established from the beginning, right? That there's this piece of, we can't move fast, right? And there's different pieces of work that everyone's working on, but it always comes to DEI for me. And so for DEI, you know, it's always been very clear from the beginning of, we need to slowly progress. And then I think what I have done really well, and I think others I've seen in the space do really well, is that when you gauge the room, you have to find those people that are also really invested and wanting to do this work and understand that it is going to take a little bit of a longer time to do it. And so it becomes hard because when tensions do arise and those people that want to move at a thousand miles an hour are suddenly slowed down. It, 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 causes, it definitely causes tension, but I think it's also important that when you have other people in the room that understand that this work requires time and that they're stepping up with their voices and saying, hey, no, I think we need to take a step back, then I think it becomes critical. When they hear it from the same person, it really, really, that's where I've struggled with the most. It's like, I could tell everyone everything, but after a while, it just, it just comes on, on, you know, it just doesn't go in and it just goes in one ear and out the other. And so I think that's why it's so critical that when you build those allies in the room, you encourage them to also speak up and empower them to do so. And so most of the times now when we have those conversations and the board member wants to go so fast or clinic member wants to go so fast, I usually have someone else in the room say, no, what if we just took a pause and, and didn't go so fast? And other people are like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I could see it that way. And so that's why I think that's why not only that gauging the room piece is so critical, but also that's how you kind of manage that tension. The other thing that you all I ha- I've had to recognize is that everyone is in a different journey with diversity, equity, inclusion. So that's why I would say it's so critical that to start from the basics, which is let's have a conversation about your perspective growing up. Maybe you grew in a town that was with all white people. Maybe you grew in a town that was all people of color. And now you're navigating in the same space together. And how does that conversation look like? And so when you structurally build out a program that is built to be slow, then I think it starts to build that momentum. So for example, when I'm on Country Doctor, it's one of the community health centers out in Seattle, and I started this work with them. As a board member, we spent the first six months just having a conversation on how did your growing up affect where you are today? How do you see the world? What community agreements? So what community conversation agreements are we going to have for how we talk with each other? And then that set that tone for that board saying, oh, okay, so we're going to start with the fundamental. We're not going to just change the mission statement or change this or change that. And I think that that really helped us shape the momentum to say, no, we're here to be invested over the long term, not just the short term. All right. What does it take to be awarded the Gilbert Oman Award for Academic Excellence? Because you were awarded that. I don't know exactly what it is, but I know it's something big. So, so what? Tell people what the award is, and, and uh, this is—you're going to have to blow your own horn here a little bit. What did you have to do 
to end up with that award, which is probably not a goal you had, but there it was. So uh, what is it and what did you have to do? What did you end up doing that ended up getting you that award? Yeah. So I usually, I was completely surprised by that award. So um, that one is not even one that folks can apply for. So I, I, I usually never chase awards, never chase recognition. That's kind of not really the way I operate. But at the end of the, at a, when I was graduating, I, I would, had this great ability over the time to start this curriculum advocacy team that I had talked about, right? That was working with faculty and professors. We went national. So we connected with 20 other MHA program students from across the nation. We came together on a Zoom call on a Saturday morning. And we had a day-long retreat that we led at University of Washington where we got to engage with them and say, how do you bring this work back? And we ended up actually consulting with uh, Cornell University's program, which was really, really great to empower their students to do that work. And so we were able to build all this momentum. Um, I had the opportunity to present at several conferences and presentations, which were really great. And then getting to do my work with Country Doctor, like it, you know, it's one thing when you're learning in the classroom, but then to learn and to experience that and put that in real life of what leadership looks like out in the field is, is amazing. And so I, by the end of my year, I, I just happened to be in a lot of great spaces and I ended up getting nominated by the MHA program. So all the faculty, they got together um, and they had sent me a letter saying, hey, we're nominating you for the department. And I was like, oh, that's great. Cool. And then they were like, oh, and they nominate, like, you know, they select one MA, like one master's student and one PhD student in the entire school to get this award. And I was like, oh, okay, sure. Go for it. <laughs> and so they ended up submitting my application and I ended up uh, getting this award that I, I never thought I was very, very honored to get, but never, never expected. Um, and so it was just such a great honor to to get that because it also it just validated a lot of the pieces that I had done over the time in my graduate school. So yeah, it was it was truly an honor. I wonder, talk if you would, if you don't mind, the uh, influence your parents had in who you are that probably was foundational in where you are today. What did they bring to the conversation for you? Yeah, our family's definitely been through hard times. Never been easy. For sure. But my my mom, uh, especially, is everything, everything, everything to me. She has been at the crux of every decision I've ever made. And so initially, when I wanted to start this journey, I had a very different vision uh, for what I wanted to do. And, you know, in my culture, so I'm an Asian Indian, and in our culture, prestige and all of that is so doctor, lawyer, engineer, you have to be the top, you have to get the highest salary. And so dealing with that culture was very, very difficult at the beginning. Uh, but my mom was very different in the sense that she said, no, pursue what you want to do and be happy about it. And so I, I took that. And every time, every time I made, when I made this huge change into being health, like healthcare management, initially I had some other family members like, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just become a doctor? But my mom was like, no, you should do what you're passionate about. And so that really, 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 really helped. And having her, my sister and my dad just support me along every step of the way been so critical. I mean, I, I say that 75% of my success is because they have been at every moment with me. Okay, so a few questions then. In your own words, you've taken a lot of classes now, so but you have a point of view. What is leading and leadership to you? So I think leading and leadership for me means that you are bringing everyone along. I think sometimes as a leader, when you're in certain positions, it's very easy to be like, it's my way or the highway. And to kind of use this authoritative, kind of not dictatorship, but kind of dictatorship way to say, no, you got to do it this way. And I think that's that's not 
that's not the right way of thinking. I think that's kind of the old school way of thinking of just get it done. I don't care how it's done. And I think now when I've been in a lot of spaces, it's really about saying, how am I going to bring the people that are with me on this journey? And I think it's really, really critical that that piece is there. I, I think we all have to realize that we can't do this work alone. I mean, it's going to take all of us, right? Like, especially in healthcare to really move the momentum forward or in any field that you're in to really move the momentum forward. So I think the question at the end of the day, right, when you're saying leading and leadership is not only empowering every single person to take ownership in the work, but also saying, how are you going to bring them along? How are you going to let them the work and own the work and really be impassioned about moving the work forward? And just recognize that I think sometimes that means stepping back and letting people take lead when if you're the one that typically takes lead all the time, or it maybe might mean that you just share the responsibility for the work. But I think that's why it's super important that when when you do that work with others, that you you certainly empower them so that they're passionate about that work as well. Hmm. Okay. So you've been at this for long enough now. So what surprised you about yourself inside this work? What, I mean, out of the classroom, into the, into the work world, working in, in the real classroom, what surprised you about who you are that you didn't know about until you were in it? And, and, and what, what value is that for you? Initially, I think when I, when I very first started, maybe when I was an undergrad and when I was high school, I was actually one of those intrinsic people that would just kind of step back and say, no, you know what? I, I think someone else should take a leadership role or someone else should do this. And when I started to get into this mentality of that anyone could be a leader, I think it really shaped and surprised me that like when I went from the classroom to the real world that, that I, as an individual, could, could contribute so much. In the classroom, I think it's kind of hard because you, you're kind of doing scenario-based, practice-based, and so you don't feel the real-world effects of what does it mean to work with humans. Uh, and humans are, are very complex individual beings. And so being able to navigate those tricky situations has been something that's really, really surprised me. Just because, again, I would be one of those folks that usually would just kind of be stepped back and just let other people kind of take the lead until, you know, kind of when I went to my master's program and I, I really got this message that, you know, every single one of us are leaders and, and to kind of move that forward. I guess the other piece that I would say that's a little bit surprising to me, but I'm not sure if it's surprising or kind of like this area of improvement is I still find myself, I think, like I kind of mentioned before in healthcare of move so fast and forward. And I think sometimes it's very, very important to step back and identify what the problem is beginning. Because I think in healthcare, we're so used to saying, here's the problem. Let's just get it done. Well, what we won't worry about what the root of the problem was. You know, we'll just worry about how we got it fixed. And so I think what surprised me the most of like taking all of this work is that you have to really, really step and pause. Because I think the classroom allows that ability to do that. But the real world does not allow that ability to do that. There's not enough time. And if you don't get something done, then someone's going to be asking questions. And so I think that's why it's it's been so, I think that's been my, the toughest piece. But I think that's also the piece that surprised me the most about how many times I've paused before saying something. I'm, I'm so used to now saying now that if I'm sitting in a room with a bunch of medical assistants and staff members and they're asking questions, I'm okay saying, Hey, let me, I'm going to take a pause. Let me think about it before I give you an answer. I don't want to give you an answer. That's just not what's going to work and be sustainable. And that's also not going to be with all the feedback that we could possibly get to actually get a solution that will work for us. So I think pausing has been the biggest surprising 
piece for me. I'm going to guess that Mr. O'Brien uttered the phrase uh, at some point in your journey with him about getting on the balcony. Uh-huh. Yes. And seeing the dance floor. And and the listeners of this podcast have heard this many times. And uh, I think that's what you're talking about a little bit, because I think one of the most prevalent conditions for people who have authority and leading is misdiagnosing the problem because they didn't slow down to, to look at it. And so I think you're speaking to a critical skill set for people in your world and other worlds where the complex nature of the work itself in the middle of this hustle and bustle still is going to insist that if you want to make progress, you got to slow down and take a, a good deep look before you go. So on the flip side of this, then, we tend to learn more from our leadership failures than we do our successes. So what are some lessons you've learned the hard way? that you can impart on people so at least they don't travel the same road you did on that issue? (laughs) So I think one of the hardest pieces that I've learned is that you, my age sometimes defined how other people saw my leadership capability. And why I say that is because most of the spaces I've been in in healthcare, typically the age is kind of 10 to 15 to 20, 30 years and I'm also fortunate to be involved in a board. And that's a really great example where you have board members that have been there for a while. And so I'm the youngest person in the room. And I think sometimes that makes it very difficult because other people in the room say, well, I'm more experienced. I have knowledge. What would you know? You know, like, how are you going to contribute? How could you have leadership capability? And I think that was kind of the biggest barrier that I, I've seen just kind of in this work is like, saying that, yes, I'm young, but I also could bring fresh thoughts, I could bring fresh perspective and add something of value here that maybe you haven't seen before because we've been doing it for so long a certain way. And so I think I want folks to know that especially people that are my generation, my age, is that don't let that stop you because we're talking about the next generation of leaders. I mean, that's the whole, the, the a lot of this podcast is how we, you know, the current leaders that are there now, how are we passing this word forward. And I think a lot of younger generations, I just want them to know that, you know, literally your, your, your voice does matter. And we've seen it in so many spaces in different sectors of the US that your voice really does matter. And so I, I do want to emphasize that. And then I think the other um, part that I, I do want to emphasize with the just challenge is that leadership is hard. Sometimes the spotlight gets put on you, you know, maybe you say one thing a certain way, someone takes it a different way, or you do something and now everyone else is asking questions. And so I just wanted also to be made clear that in a leadership perspective, it's okay to make mistakes. I think not acknowledging them is one piece, but if you acknowledge it and say, okay, let's work on correcting it, I think that's a critical thing. I think often in in leadership, we're saying, oh, we said this one thing, but if we take it back, how will it sound like to this and that and that? It doesn't matter what a lot of other people think. At the end of the day, for me, when it comes to, did I make a mistake? It comes back to, if my mom was looking at me over my shoulder, my dad was looking at me, my sister was, and myself in the mirror, would I be okay with what I said, what I did? And sometimes that means acknowledging your mistakes and saying, hey, no, I made a mistake. Let's go back to the drawing board and figure out what's going to work best for us. It's so wonderful. I just read this quote this morning, Nelson Mandela. He said, I, I never lose. I either win or I learn. Yes, that's great. And I thought, you know, that's uh, that's a wonderful way to to sort of reposition those moments in time as a learning moment. All right. So 
you came on this podcast probably with some thoughts and ideas, and it's not likely I've given you an opening for all of those because I don't know them. So what is it I didn't ask you that you want you want to be asked so that you can say something that you think is important for the people who might be listening? What did I miss? What do you got? What do you want to say? You know, for me, because I'm so passionate about healthcare, it, a lot of this comes back to that piece. And I guess the piece that I, I would say is that when we're in leadership positions, no matter, I guess, where we are, even if it's healthcare or not, I think sometimes that that taking a back and looking is so critical. And the reason I say that is because the first question you should ask when leaders are coming together to make a decision is who is not in the room? Not as who, who is in the room, who is not in the room? Because often within healthcare in general, a lot of decisions are made for communities and we don't look around the table and ask who is there and who is not. And so that's why I think it's really cool that, for example, community health center boards, over 51% of the board has to be patients. Because I think that in and of itself is empowering patients and community members to be a part of some of this change. And so I think that's the first piece I would say is always, always take a look around and see who is there, who is not there. And then second, how do you empower those folks that are not there to either get a seat at the table or to be a part of the implementing or the, or the support of the, how everything is developed? And so that's why I, I think this is super, super critical. And then the other piece I would say in terms of just overall, um, I think right now we're in a space where because we're coming from a pandemic and right now there's been a lot of things that have been happening around the U.S., police brutality, issues with uh, health disparities, a lot of things that are happening. A lot of organizations are really making this push. And in leadership, you know, leaders are doing this is they're making, again, as I mentioned before, these statements around diversity, equity, inclusion. And what I would really insist to leaders is, that is great that you made a statement. I want to know what's coming after it. What is your action plan after it? If you make a statement, but then you just leave it and you never ask what that next step is because you, maybe you don't want to have that uncomfortable conversation, or maybe you just don't think maybe it's not as major or as important as it should be. I think that's where um, we really need to encourage our leaders to say the next step. And not only what is the next step, you know, how are you going to voice that communication of what work you are doing to the community, the patients, the staff, so that everyone can actually hold you accountable for the things that you are supposed to do as a healthcare organization or any nonprofit or community health center that is really there to, to support our community members. So I think I would just add those two pieces. Okay, thank you for that. You're not always going to be the youngest guy in the room. <laughs> you got a bright future ahead of you. So when you look ahead, what's in your future? Where, where, are, you, where are you going? What, what, what are your dreams and aspirations for, for yourself and for the world and for the initiatives you're taking on? So I actually just applied for to go back to school. Of course, who loves, you know, no one loves more school than I. But I think part of that was because I'm still on this journey. And I think a lot of times I get questions around DEI and everyone expects me to be the expert. And I'm like, I, I'm not an expert. I'm learning just like you are. Every day I learn something new. And so I just applied for a doctorate program that if it goes through would actually be focused around health equity and social justice. Uh, it's a great program that's offered through Johns Hopkins. So I'm kind of looking forward to that opportunity. And then in the future, I just want to stay in the community health center realm. Um, again, like I want to be where the care has to be provided. It's really been me stepping away from the typical kind of hospital system and saying, no, I want to work where people, that's the thing I love is like everyone looks like me. So I don't feel out of place all my life. 
And then you have patients that are walking in the door that look like I did when I was young, right? Holding the mom's hand, walking through the door. And like, imagine if you're a little kid and you're walking into a clinic, you know, you think, you know, the typical uh, needles and all that stuff and kids would be scared. But imagine walking to a clinic where you see someone that could look like your aunt or your uncle or your family member that looks like you, speaks your language. I think that in itself is so empowering. And so really wanting to stay in the community health center warm and grow and and probably eventually um, do some consulting. I think that's kind of where it's kind of headed to that space of like, how could I work with community health centers specifically to think about how they address diversity, equity, and inclusion? Because I think one of the biggest pieces, and I've, I've always been asked this question is, where do you believe that diversity, equity, inclusion should be done? And usually when folks ask me that question, they say, should it be at the board level? Should it be at the leadership level? Should it be at the staff level? And I said, it should be at every level. It shouldn't be at one level. The patient that comes in and sees a provider that doesn't look like them may get a different treatment of care than someone else. And the board, you know, you're creating a strategic plan, what the entire organization is going to look like. And you have the leadership that carries it out. And so that's why it's so critical that that conversation happen at every level. And so being able to do that consulting work would be really great. So I think that's kind of eventually where I want to shift. And then I think uh, I also love teaching students. Like since I graduated, I've like taught like numerous classes with the MHA program and I've loved every minute of it. And so I think uh, going back and teaching a little bit like in a university would be really, really great. Fantastic. Kush Doshi, thank you for coming in the swamp. Thank you for sharing your journey, your counsel your advice, lessons learned, and uh, mostly for being the bright light of energy and possibility that comes from hard work and committing to education and helping people. So thanks so much for all of this. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much, Rick. I appreciate that. And, and to everyone out there, again, just wanted to reiterate that you could be a leader too. It only takes one person to start a movement. Thank you for listening to 10,000 Swamp Leaders with Rick Torset. Please take this moment and hit subscribe to follow more Leadership Swamp conversations.